Have you ever tried to feed a nice medium ribeye steak to an infant? I didn't think so, because if you had tried that, you probably wouldn't be here this morning. You'd be in jail for some child abuse charge. We just don't do that. Newborns can't handle red meat. Newborns certainly couldn't digest it. They might can swallow it whole. As a child progresses in development, they move from mother's milk to maybe soft food, and then later what we might call adult food. But it takes time, and most people naturally progress from milk to solid food. I've never witnessed someone who has gone through a normal mental and physical development that was still eating Gerber's Nature Select Carrots from one of those little plastic containers when they're 25 years old. If we did observe someone doing that, say out at a restaurant, eating baby food from a container, we might rightly suspect that they have some, had some sort of accident or stroke or maybe a digestive system disease, but we wouldn't think it was normal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul draws on this imagery and drawing a distinction between spiritual and carnal Christians. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, the first three verses read this way, And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as spiritual, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? This whole chapter is going to be a bit of a rebuke to the Corinthians. But as Paul opens up the chapter, he uses a very tender term, actually, the term brethren, to make sure that they understand as he's rebuking them, that he's not there to tear them down, but he's there to build them up. This point, I think, is far too often lost on those in leadership positions, not just in churches, but especially in churches. The goal of discipline should be restoration. It actually should be encouragement. It shouldn't be destruction. Paul's objective is that the Corinthians get this right. It's very important. He's not trying to drive them away, but at the same time, he doesn't want to compromise either the truth or his apostolic authority as he rebukes them. But he wants to build them up, not to tear them down. When we see the term brethren in the New Testament, it's almost always referring to someone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one exception that I know of, and that's Romans 9.3, where Paul uses a modifier. And he talks about the Jews who are his kinsmen, his brethren according to the flesh. Every other time that I know of, when the term brethren is used, it's used in a context of that person being a Christian. So there are three critical terms. I hope you saw them in the first verse. After brethren, we have this term pneumatikos in Greek. It means spiritual. Now we were introduced to that last time. Pneumatikos. You see the word pneuma in there. It means spiritual. There's a second word that's introduced in chapter 3, verse 1, and it's sarkikos. Now, this is a new word for us. It means fleshly or carnal. And then finally, there's nepios, which means an infant or a babe. And those are three critical terms. I don't often give you the Greek terms, but sometimes it matters. And here I think it matters because of the distinction that Paul draws between chapter 2 and then in chapter 1. He's going to use especially the term pneumatikos differently than he did in the previous chapter. 
And since there is, believe it or not, great controversy about whether this verse is talking to believers or unbelievers, I can't believe there's any controversy at all. I need to at least go through some of these terms. So three terms that are extremely important in verse 1. Pneumatikos, which is translated spiritual. Sarkikos, which is translated fleshly or carnal. And napios, which is translated babes or infants. Writing under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul does an interesting thing between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, the distinction that he's going to be drawing is between the spiritual person who in chapter 2 has the ability to discern spiritual things, to appraise spiritual things because they have the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he's using this idea of spiritual in a very general sense to describe all believers. That was chapter 2. The natural man in chapter 2 was one who did not have the Holy Spirit and therefore is not a saved person. They're not a believer. So in chapter 2, I want to remind you, this is what we've studied before. In chapter 2, there's a distinction that Paul draws. And the distinction is between someone who's a believer and someone who's not a believer. It's very clear in that chapter. The term for natural man there is psuchikos. Sometimes people translate that soulish man, but the distinction is there between believer and non-believer. In chapter 3, there's a significant change that's taken place. And this change needs to be recognized. For if it is not, we're going to make a huge mistake. And huge mistakes in theology typically end up having huge mistakes in the way that we live. And some of the most popular preachers out there today, on radio particularly, make this mistake. In chapter 2, the distinction is between believer and non-believer, between spiritual and natural. But in chapter 3, that is not the distinction. In chapter 3, he's going to use similar terminology, but the distinction is among believers, between two groups of Christians. And we're going to validate the fact that they are Christians in this way. Look back at verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. He calls them brethren. Now that should settle it. But just in case it doesn't, as the verse ends, he says, as to babes in Christ. Now, I will stand here dogmatically to you. There is nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere, anywhere, you're going to find someone who is in Christ that's not a believer. That's Paul's technical term for people who are in the body of Christ. I can't believe that anybody can miss this. It's right here both brethren and in Christ. He's talking to believers in this chapter. He's making the distinction between two groups of Christians. He's saying to this group of believers, I could not speak to you about spiritual things because you're functioning, you're acting like you're not a believer at all. I want you to note again, they are believers, but they're not acting like believers. Again, this is no small thing. Because of the popularity of some of the preachers, and if I said their names, you know, but it's not important. We're not out to, I'm not out to knock them, but I am out to knock their idea. There are some very popular preachers that have a very wide audience, both in print and on the airwaves, that say that this chapter is talking about a distinction between believer and unbeliever. That the people in verse 3 are unbelievers. Excuse me, you can't do that. If these words mean anything, we've got to take them for what, what they are. We can't insert our own meaning. He's speaking to believers here. And the, the implication is this, and all of us have had this happen to us. I have. 
we see people out there that say, yes, I have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life. And then we observe the way that they live and we say, how could that be? I just don't see it. You have a right to question a disconnect between what they say they believe and their actions because of the very fact that there's a disconnect there. But it doesn't automatically follow that if somebody's not acting like a Christian, they're not a Christian. I know that's very popular. There's this idea of the new reformers, the new reformation, and it's some of the very the most popular people in America, from New York to Minnesota to Los Angeles. That's as much of a hint as I'm going to give you. And these people will tell you, they'll put it in print, that this verse is talking to, un to unbelievers, people who are just pretending to be Christians, or just say they're Christians, or made a false profession of faith. A thousand times, no. Christians can fail. Now, we don't encourage that. I don't want anything that I say this morning to be taken as an encouragement to sin or an excuse to sin. Oh, that's just me. That's just my old sin nature. No, that's not what we're talking about. But the reality is that we can all fail. And when we fail, there's a problem with our perception of the Word of God. That's Paul's point here. The Corinthians were failing. In fact, I don't know how many articles or books have been written that, that term the Corinthians the carnal Corinthians. But they were believers. Doesn't mean that they were not Christians. It meant that they weren't acting like it and that their spiritual growth is hindered. But they are believers. There can be no question about it. He doesn't use the same term to describe them that he used the unbelievers in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, it was sukikos, sukikos, natural or soulish. And they could not appraise the things of God because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. In this chapter, it's sarkikos. It's where we get the word carnal from. The word carnal comes from a Latin word that has to do with flesh. That's why sometimes it's, it's translated fleshly. Sarkikos. They're called brethren and they're called babes in Christ. Now that settles it. I don't care how big your audience is or how articulate you are or how good you may be at another area of theology. This is big because when people do this, they hold it over to your heads. As soon as you sin in the least little bit away, so I don't know if you're I don't know if you're saved at all. It's a famous story about Bob Jones Jr. wanted to go interview C.S. Lewis at Oxford. So Bob Jones Jr. went to Oxford to interview Lewis. Now, if you went to Oxford to interview Lewis, if, it did, if the interview didn't happen in his office at Magdalen College, it was going to it was going to happen at the the Bird and the Child Pub or the Eagle and the Child Pub. Because that's where the Inklings went every afternoon to drink their scotch and to smoke their cigars and their cigarettes. And Bob Jones was aghast at this. You know, how could this be? Somebody asked him, actually Walter Hooper asked him, who was Lewis's biographer, so what do you think of Professor Lewis? And he said reluctantly, well, he smokes and he drinks, but I guess he is a Christian. <laughs> I'm not trying to make too, too little of this. We are called to holy behavior. And I don't want to imply anything but that. But we have to keep our categories straight. There is a possibility that you as a believer, or me as a believer, could get off the track. And when we do that, according to the Pauline terminology, we're considered carnal, or sarkikos, if you prefer that Greek term. We're considered carnal. We're not a natural man. We're not the category of the previous chapter. We're still a believer, but we have a problem. 
And Paul draws the distinction between these two groups. Again, please, I want to make sure you understand, no one should leave here and use this as an excuse for some sort of condoning of bad behavior. Not at all. In fact, the chapter is arguing against that. But he's arguing to believers. He's not arguing that believers clean up their behavior or that individuals clean up their behavior so that they can be a believer. When a believer is living in carnality, they will end up acting childishly. A child is still a human being. Sometimes we wonder about that. Sometimes, you know, when you see them running all over the place and tearing everything apart, those little rugrats are still human beings. They're acting childishly, but they're still human beings. In this chapter, they're still Christians, but they're acting childishly. Again, in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ, to people who are acting like you're not saved. I can't give you what I need to give you. I've got some pretty heavy food. I've got a ribeye I need to feed you, but you can't handle a ribeye. These people wouldn't have even had any teeth to chew it. And they probably couldn't have swallowed it without choking. And if they did swallow it, no telling what would have happened to a little baby with a piece of red meat like that. Then in verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet, you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Or like natural man, the natural man. Aren't you living in a way that there really isn't any distinguishing mark between you and someone who's not a Christian? That's an insult. Long time ago, and I'm really thankful that it was a long time ago, I had a practice where I would see people on a repeated basis. Usually a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, six to eight weeks. So I would get to know the patient fairly well. And this was 20 plus years ago. And one time I had a fellow come in, and I had seen him for, I don't know, eight or ten visits perhaps, so that would have um, been a significant amount of time that I talked with him. I believe it was a Friday night, and he asked me, he said, hey, what are you doing? You got any, got any plans for tonight? I said, well, I kind of do. And he said, well, hey, listen, me and a bunch of the guys, we're going to go out uh, partying tonight. I wanted to know if you want to come with us. And I said, no, I, I appreciate the invitation, but um, I'm going to church tonight. And you, I mean, it was total silence. He said, you're, you're going to church tonight? I said, yeah, I'm going to church. And he said, you're a Christian? I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he said, wow, I never took you for a Christian. Now, he meant it as a compliment. I didn't take it as a compliment. When I was finished with him, I went back in my office and I shut my door and I put my head in my hands and I said, what have I been doing wrong? That I've spent at least an hour with this man and he has no clue at all that I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I vowed that that would never happen again. Now, it's not that I would wear a fish pin or that I would have maybe Christian music playing in the office. I wasn't talking about that. I'm talking about a personal interaction with me for that length of time. And you had no clue that I was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something was wrong with me. At that point, I must have been acting, at least in front of him, I must have been acting like a mere man. And that's the category of person that Paul's talking about. Now, what Paul's saying here is that you people, you people, <laughs> you people are not acting 
consistently with who you are in Christ. It's been long enough now. It's been a couple years, three years perhaps. It's been long enough now since you've been saved that you should be able to eat red meat, meaning you should be more than just a spiritual infant. There should have been some growth that's taken place, but it hasn't taken place. So what he's saying is, effectively, there's not a whole lot of difference between you and the people I was talking about in the previous chapter. Positionally, there's a tremendous amount of difference. Positionally. But effectively, so I've got some of these things I want to teach you, but you can't absorb them. I had to give you some of the most basic things. Milk rather than solid food. The contrast between milk and solid food in verse 2 seems to be a transparent metaphor for the difference between rudimentary and advanced biblical teaching. The idea seems to be that the carnal believer can understand some things of a spiritual nature, but that living consistently in rebellion against God hinders spiritual education and spiritual growth. The carnal believer can, according to what Paul's saying here, can understand some basic things of Christianity, some basic things. The milk, the carnal believer, can take in milk. But a person's rebellion, consistent rebellion against God, is going to hinder them from their long-term spiritual education and then their activities. That's the point he's making here. It's not as if the Christian ever loses the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's permanently indwelling you. The Holy Spirit is what gives you the motivation to confess your sins in the first place. But if we're walking out of fellowship with God, our ability to understand biblical truth is hindered. It's not done away with, it's not obliterated, but it is hindered, and apparently it's hindered pretty greatly, understanding the terms that Paul's using here, milk versus solid food. I hope you see, they can take in the milk, but they can't take in the solid food. At any given worship service, those who are walking in fellowship with God will have a fuller appreciation of what is taught and also a fuller apprehension of what is taught. They'll appreciate it and they will apprehend it more fully. That's why it's a good idea to come into any worship service, whether it's this or Sunday night or Wednesday night, or any time you're going to gather together with believers in worship, whether it's simply for a prayer meeting or for a song service or whatever it might be, you want to come into that service walking in fellowship with God. And in order to walk in fellowship with God, we need to have confessed our sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's interesting that most of the same people that believe that verse 1 is talking to an unbeliever also believe that, that 1 John 1 9 is a salvation verse. Now, why they do that there, I'm not sure either. But this is a verse for believers. If we'll confess our sins, He's going to forgive us our sins. So I believe that it's a good idea to confess your sins before you ever get in the door. I believe it's a good idea to confess them before you ever leave the house. And then if you need to confess them again once you get here because of the traffic or the conversation you had with your husband or your wife on the way, then feel free to do it. That's not why Cindy and I take different cars, by the way. <laughs> There's just no need for her to get here this early. But I watch some of the rest of you have to go off to yourself sometimes and have a little quiet time. Some of you have asked, let me just go ahead and tell you. I don't have a stop and pray right before the sermon. And that is not an accident. That's by design. Because I want you in fellowship for the whole service. 
I want you to practice being in fellowship before you ever get here. So the minute you hit that door, that parking lot, and you start interacting with other believers, you're walking in fellowship with God because that interaction is an aspect of worship. Everything that's, that's done here is an aspect of worship. So we don't want to wait until the sermon starts and say, well, now worship has begun. In some churches, it's just the opposite. They think worship begins and then ends after the song service, and I don't know what the sermon's supposed to be after that. So we need to walk in fellowship with God. We do need to confess our sins before we ever get in here so that we are walking in fellowship with God, so that no matter how long we've been a believer, we do have the ability to understand these things of God, to understand them, appreciate them, and then apprehend them. I'm not talking to, when it comes to confession, about just a, a very impersonal, brief recitation of some of the sins that we commit and then leave it at that. I'm talking about seriously going to God and admitting that what we did was wrong and that there is some sort of repentance there. Now, the repentance is not necessary for the forgiveness, but the repentance is necessary to continue to walk in fellowship with God. So we need to take it seriously. We can fool ourselves sometimes, but we never fool God. The reason that Paul did not feel that he could give them more advanced instruction was that they were being dominated by the flesh. We might also call that the old sin nature or the sinful nature. As believers, they were allowing the sin nature to rule rather than following the leading ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life. They were not only immature, but they were also carnal. They were immature and they were carnal. I make this point because it's not just the immature that can be carnal. Mature believers can have periods of carnality as well. I think King David was an example of this. God's desire is for us to advance to maturity in our Christian walk. And it's to be, his desire is for us to be spiritual at the same time. An immature person, or rather a mature person, can walk in carnality. An immature person can be walking in fellowship with God and hence spiritual. Let me see if I can give you these categories. Paul distinguishes between the natural man, that's chapter 2. But among believers, an immature believer can be carnal. That's the category of person Paul is talking to in this chapter. An immature person can be carnal. I guess that's the worst of all the categories. The immature person can also be spiritual. That's not stated in verse 1, but it's implied by verse 1. Because he's taking these people who are relatively new in Christ and saying, you should be spiritual. The mature believer can be carnal. That's also implied by verse 1. And the mature believer can be spiritual. That's the idea. That's what we want. So you see, there are those categories that we may fit into at any one particular time. But we might also add another, because I think most of us fit in this, this particular category. And that is someone who's between immaturity and maturity. I don't think any of us should ever stop one day and say, well, I'm a mature Christian. Paul could do that, but I'm going to leave that to him. All the rest of us are maturing in our faith. I don't think any of us have arrived. So there is this category between maturity and immaturity, and there are people in that category that are carnal, and there are people in that category that are spiritual. I think that's where most of us fall. It's not the amount of biblical truth that the individual knows that determines his or her spirituality. It's what they are doing with what they know at any given moment. We see that in the next few verses. In these verses, 
Paul lets the Corinthians diagnose themselves and come to their own conclusions about their own spirituality. I like that because it's so much easier when we can come to our own conclusions about our sin and what we're doing wrong than if somebody just constantly just points them out to us. Because if someone else is just constantly pointing them out, we tend to resist. But if we can come to our own conclusions, then we can make changes. And that's what Paul wants. Paul's making his case here. Look at verses 4 through 10. For when one says, and by the way, watch this. He's talking about their carnality here. What is making them carnal? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you've believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul brings up now an issue in chapter 3 that he introduced in chapter 1. This idea of disunity in the body of Christ and in this local church in particular. But here we find that the real problem apparently wasn't the Cephas party that we talked about in chapter 1 or the Christ party. But the real problem in Corinth dealt with the division over two men, Paul and Apollos. That's where the real division seems to have come from. And what he's saying by, by condemning this division, he's saying that this division, the way you're acting, is an example of carnal behavior. I want you to follow this, because this is really critical as to how we behave in the local church. Divisions in the body of Christ and people who are divisive in the body of Christ over personalities are acting in carnality. Now, sometimes we have to divide over issues that, over which people have to divide. The gospel, I mean, that's something central. The deity of Christ is something central. The trinity. But there are certain issues, and the personality of the pastor or the one presenting the word of God is not something over which we should be bickering and divisive. Paul is using that here as an example of carnality. Let's be frank, we all have our preferences when it comes to those who communicate the truth of the Word of God. And those preferences may be based on style of communication or the age of the person. or There's all different kinds of factors. We can have preferences. That's perfectly normal. So you don't have to confess that you may have a preference to one person's style over another person's style. That's not what Paul's saying here. In fact, the Corinthians were not saying, look, we prefer Paul. But Apollos is a fine expositor. We can learn a lot from Apollos. That's not what they were saying in Corinth. And there wasn't a group that was saying, listen, I prefer Apollos. But that Paul guy, well, I don't really like the way that he presents it. I mean, he's still a fine expositor. He does a really good job, and I can learn a lot from him. That's not what they were saying. That would have been perfectly normal, non-sinful. It would have been totally upfront, totally reasonable, understandable. It's okay to have preferences. But these Corinthians weren't merely expressing preferences. They were dividing into factions and aligning themselves with a particular servant of God. 
And the implication is that those who align themselves with Paul maligned Apollos. And those who align themselves with Apollos would malign Paul. And that is an insult to God. That's what Paul is calling carnal behavior. That kind of divisiveness within a local body. We want to make sure that we avoid that. That will tear a local body apart. It's okay to have preferences. It's not okay to use those preferences to be a divisive force in the body of Christ. Paul was a great servant of the Lord, and so was Apollos. They had different styles, I'm sure. They had different functions. In verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered. They're both servants of God. They both had been assigned a particular task within that body. They had different functions. Paul plants, Apollos waters. But both are essential functions, wouldn't you say? You could water ground that doesn't have a seed in it. Nothing's going to happen. Or you could plant and never water. and Nothing's going to happen. Both are essential. Both men had their place in the body of Christ. And God's the one that gave them that place in the body of Christ. He's the one that decided Paul would be the one that plants. And Apollos would be the one that waters. I don't know. Maybe Paul prayed at night. Why can't I be the one that waters? I want to, I want to plant and water. Or Apollos says, why, why, don't, why don't I get to do something besides uh, water? And I want to plant sometimes. I hope they didn't do that. They should be content. We should be content with whatever function God gave us in the body of Christ. We shouldn't always be looking for something else. Aspire to do the best you can with whatever he gave you to do in the body of Christ. Some of those functions are within the, the concept of the local church on a Sunday morning meeting. Some of them aren't. Some of them extend into outreaches that people never see and never hear about. But God hears about them. And we'll see that now. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Must have been counterintuitive for Paul to say that. Because for many, many years now, he has devoted his life to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been through incredible hardships. We'll read about them later. Incredible hardships. Hardships that would have made most people quit long time before. And now he's saying, I'm not really anything. Apollos isn't really anything. But God. He's what's really something. I think that's one of the things that made Paul as great as he was. He realized that all the glory belongs to God. We've got a, a placard up right outside my office that says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. It's not the one who plants, and it's not the one who waters, but it's the one who causes the growth in the first place that we should be glorifying. You see how silly it is when we start aligning ourselves along the preference lines of human deliverers of the truth. Somebody told me one time, and I think he was right. He said, you're nothing but a dandified messenger boy. And he's right about that. Absolutely right. I didn't die on the cross for anybody's sins. I wasn't tied to a post, stripped down naked, and scourged to within an inch of my life. I've got no scars on my back. Jesus Christ did that for you. I've, had, I've never had hand, nails driven through my hands or feet. Paul hadn't had that done, and neither had Apollos. There's only one person that died for us. The rest of us just communicate that message. The communication of the message always ought to lead one to 
a greater appreciation of Jesus Christ. They may appreciate the effort that's been put in to help them understand that truth, and that's perfectly normal. But the ultimate appreciation at the end of the day needs to belong to God. It's not the one who plants, not the one who waters, but God who causes the growth. He should be the recipient of all of our praise. Now, Paul brings up something here in the the last two verses as we close out our time this morning that's really critical, I think. And that is, we need to remember that God keeps the score. Have you ever played a game with somebody and you really wondered whether or not they were keeping the right score? (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute. He putted that ball four times. How can he he get a five on the hole? You know, it's a par five. You know, something like that. You know, you wonder, wait a minute. Are you playing bridge and your wife or your husband counts it up and at the end he says, no, how can that be? That score can't be true. We're always wanting to make sure that we get everything that's coming to us. Right? You know, a lot of people at the grocery store line, they add something up and say, wait a minute, that bill's way too big. Let's go back through this again. I want to make sure I got all my groceries. That's perfectly legitimate. But one of the things you don't have to worry about is keeping score with regard to your spiritual service for the Lord. May I make a suggestion? Just do it. Just do it and go from one day to the next day, and you don't have to keep records. This is the one place you don't have to keep records. Every other area of our life, I guess we have to keep them, especially in the medical profession. You've got to keep records about everything. Not with this. You don't need to keep any records at all because God's the one keeping the score. And he never sleeps and he never slumbers and he doesn't miss a thing. And I just imagine, I just imagine when we get to heaven and we're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, that Jesus Christ is probably going to bring up things in our presence that we forgot about a long time ago. And tears will probably roll down our resurrection body cheeks, thinking, you know what, I forgot all about that. I didn't even know anybody was watching. But he's watching. And he keeps perfect score. He knows the word of encouragement you gave to somebody that needed it on the way out of church. He knows when you gave, when you gave sacrificially. He knows when you made that phone call to talk to somebody that just needed, just needed a helping hand that day. He knows how hard you prepared for that Sunday school class that nobody even knew that you were teaching that day. You didn't even get mentioned from the pulpit. Never once. But we can take comfort in knowing that God remembers it all. And we don't have to fight for every little bit. There's not a competition in the spiritual life. If we could ever get that through our heads, one big source of carnality might go away. There shouldn't be any competition between one local church and another local church. We're all part of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We'll see that when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There'll be a, we'll spend a lot of time on this concept of judgment seat of Christ. That's for believers, not for unbelievers. But look what Paul's saying here. He's saying essentially in verse 8, God keeps score. So you don't have to. It's a pretty good thing too because if God's keeping score, he's keeping the right score. If I'm keeping score, I might give myself an extra point or two or I might be a little hard on myself from time to time. But knowing that he's keeping score, I can relax. And I can just serve. And I don't have to be in competition with the guy down the street. And the person that pastors a church of 200 doesn't have to envy the pastor of the church of 800. Or doesn't have to gloat when he's in the presence of someone who's got 50 in their church. When did we stoop to this level in the first place? When did that become an issue? We should be concerned, personally concerned with every single person there. 
That's the job. Minister to every single person that you can minister to. This competition needs to be thrown out the window, and that's what Paul is saying in this portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This competition and this divisiveness is carnal behavior. It needs to go. It's got to go. We can't have this. And then verse 9, finally, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. What he's saying here, essentially, is that we're all on the same team. We are. Even if there are different personalities, even if there are different worship styles, most of our worship service is traditional. We have, we have a few things that, that are probably not totally traditional, but most of it's traditional. If a church down the street or upstairs or someone else wants to have a contemporary worship service, that's their business. It doesn't make them our enemy. If they have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, they are, they are our brothers in Christ. They are not the enemy. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't draw a hard line with certain doctrinal issues. If someone denies the deity of Christ, we've got to draw a pretty serious line there. If someone denies the Trinity or, or some other things, but if someone wants to have a different form of church government than what you grew up with, doesn't make them a heretic. There should be unity within the body of Christ. We're God's fellow workers. In other words, we're all on the same team. Now, the Corinthian church, he goes back to the idea of this God's causing the growth. The Corinthian church is God's field. It's God's building. It's his business and what is built on that field. This section of verses makes it very clear that it is possible for a genuine Christians to behave as though they were unchristian, to appear to be non-Christian. Unfortunately, this is a condition that's all too prevalent in Christianity today. A lot more people acting inconsistent with who they are in Christ than consistently. And that's unfortunate. Our objective should be to mature in our relationship with God and walk in fellowship, not in carnality. Just as it would be silly for us to go to a restaurant and pull out a container of Gerber's baby food, soft carrots. It's silly for us to be at a place in our spiritual life where we should be moving along. But restricting, voluntarily restricting our own spiritual growth by poor behavior.